Hello and welcome to Will at Warwick, a new podcast from the University of Warwick. My name is Tom Abbott. In this podcast, we will be bringing you insights into the work and world of William Shakespeare, the cultural, social and historical context in which he and his contemporaries lived. We will hear from leading academics, writers, actors, directors and theatre professionals from around the world, examining some of the latest research and opinion on the plays, characters and performances, and how Shakespeare is brought to life for the modern stage. Later, Dominic Dean reports on a new statue of Macbeth unveiled in the Great Garden of New Place in Stratford-upon-Avon. But first, we hear from Professor Jonathan Bate about his work editing a new edition of The Complete Works of Shakespeare. Jonathan, um, with the new edition of uh, The Complete Works coming out, what's the significance uh, of having a new edition at this time? Well, the works of Shakespeare have been re-edited about once every 20 years since his own lifetime. That's partly just because as times change, the kind of information we need changes. So, for instance, a generation ago, uh, readers could be expected to understand the allusions to classical mythology in Shakespeare. Now, most kids don't have a classical training, so we need explanatory notes for that. So there is part of the process is simply just sort of polishing things up and you know keeping the plays up to date. Um, I also was very keen to take this project on because there simply was no edition out there that I thought was satisfactory. Quite often um, students or parents of prospective students would say to me, OK, which is the edition of the complete works to buy? And I really couldn't put my hand on my heart and say, this is a satisfactory edition. One reason for that is simply the, the sort of technical reason that uh, nearly all editions are printed in double column, which is terribly hard to read. And most complete works editions don't actually have the explanatory notes on the page. Um, so there were sort of practical things. Um, but then once I really got into the work, I got very interested in the question of what exactly do we mean by the text of a Shakespeare play? What is the status of the original printed texts? And it's in our treatment of what editors call copy text, that we've been quite innovative. You say there about bringing Shakespeare up to date, and yet the source that you've really concentrated on for this edition is the first folio. Um, why have you concentrated on that particular edition, and what did using it bring to the project that that's new? Yeah, the thing you have to remember about Shakespeare is that the original manuscripts of his plays are lost. Uh, we don't know why or when they're lost, possibly in the great fire at the Globe Theatre in 1613. A lot of them went up in smoke. So what we have are the early printed texts. Now, for about half the plays, um, they were printed in his lifetime in little pocket volumes. Uh, the paper folded over into, into four sheets, um, so it was known as a quarto. Um, and, uh, say, half the plays published in those texts. The other half of the surviving plays were only published after his death in the so-called first folio. Folio refers to the paper size, much larger size of paper, a single fold, a big sheet. Um, and 18 of the plays only survive because they're in the folio. But of the 18 that were published in his lifetime, in many cases, the folio and the quarto texts have subtle differences between them. And what's happened in the last 300 years is that editors have adopted what I call a pick-and-mix approach. For some plays, they've followed the folio. For some, they've followed the quarto. And for some, they've really mixed line by line, taking a few lines here from the quarto, a few lines there from the folio. I decided on embarking on the, on the project um, to 
concentrate above all on the folio because that was the text authorised by Shakespeare's acting company. It was published after his death, but it was published with the authorisation of John Hemmings and Henry Condell, who were the leading actors in the company, the King's Men, that Shakespeare worked for for most of his career. This is the text, they say in their preface, that they want Shakespeare to be read in, to be remembered by. This is the text that is close to the theatre. The edition was, was actually commissioned by the Royal Shakespeare Company, and there seemed a, a sort of elegant logic to using the text of Shakespeare's original acting company for the text of the Shakespeare Company today. Does approaching the project in the context of a complete works and an assessment of the entirety of the canon change the way in which you appreciate or understand the body of work as opposed to approaching each play individually? I think it does. It's a very good, it's a very good point. Um, our project is to produce a complete works and then to roll out um, individual volumes um, with additional theatrical and um, critical materials. And the, the easy option would have been just to begin one by one, gradually doing the individual plays. But we thought, no, let's, let's take the tough decision, do the work, um, and produce a, a coherent, complete works. And that way, we, we adopt a consistent editorial approach. We adopt a consistent approach to our explanatory work on Shakespeare's language. And we, we create a whole body of work. And I think one of the things that um, following the folio has really reinforced for me is how powerful the, um, the distinction into genres that the actors made um, in the folio, how powerful that is. Um, the plays were collected um, under three headings, comedies, histories and tragedies. And the histories in particular, the actors made the decision not to print them in the order in which they were written, but rather in the order of the historical events. So the Henry VI plays were written before the Henry IV plays in terms of Shakespeare's career, but in the folio they're they're printed in order, Henry IV, Henry V, Henry VI. And so what you see reading through the whole run of history plays is this extraordinary sort of pageant of the unfolding of English history. There's a sense that they, they really are presented in the folio as a, as a single cycle of plays. Going back to that first folio, has introduced a number of grammatical and language changes, which I think many people coming to the uh, the new complete works would actually find quite surprising how have how has your use of that folio actually changed the way that we we construct uh, the language of shakespeare well one of the things that uh, is probably not noticed by most people but that actually when doing the work of editing you spend a huge amount of your time on is the punctuation um and i think that this there are some really good examples I, I, I could give here that we've we've trusted the folio punctuation far more than most editors have. Well, what, what does that mean? I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a moment in Macbeth where Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are talking about their plan to murder King Duncan. And Macbeth starts having doubts. He says, if we should fail. And Lady Macbeth replies, we fail, but screw your courage to the sticking place and we'll not fail. Now, in the folio, that's punctuated, we fail, question mark. But most modern editions, if you look at them, punctuate it, we fail, exclamation mark. The exclamation mark, it's a very um, coercive kind of punctuation. But Lady Macbeth saying, we fail. It's as if she's saying, what do you mean? We won't fail. We couldn't possibly fail. She has a kind of will of steel, no doubt in her mind at all. 
Whereas we fail with question mark can be read a number of different ways. It could be amazement. How can you possibly imagine that we fail? But it could also be just a genuine moment of doubt. Yeah, we might fail. What would happen then? A chink in the armour. A question mark. It's a, it's a more open form of punctuation. And I think for an actor, it, it gives the actor more sort of choices of interpreting the part different ways. So we, we've got far fewer exclamation marks than, than most editions. Exclamation marks tend to make actors, I think, sort of rather shout and go over the top. The other thing we've, we've done um, is um, we've used a lot of colons. Um, the colon was a very important punctuation mark in Shakespeare's time. Um, it, the, the colon originally was a, um, a term out of the art of rhetoric, and it's very important to remember that Shakespeare, in his education and his, and his writing, was very much shaped by the arts of rhetoric, of organising language to produce persuasive arguments. And a colon originally meant a unit of argument um, in, in rhetoric. And what we've found is by retaining a lot of folio colons in the punctuation, you really get a sense of the unfolding of an argument as a character speaks. One of the things actors say they love about doing Shakespeare is that when he writes his speeches, you really get the feel that the character is having those thoughts at that very moment as he or she speaks on stage. And the colon is, a, is, a, is a, I think, a wonderful punctuation device for, for, for showing the sort of, the kind of, the, the, the loops and connections in this process of thinking that seems to be so much what Shakespearean character is about. There's also been discussion, hasn't there, among, amongst uh, reviewers of the, of the works about how this new edition exposes um, Shakespeare in a much more bawdy light, um, slightly more rebellious, I think, perhaps, than, than those of us who are used to him as being this great canon of uh, English literature might, might expect. Has, has this edition really changed our view of, the, of Shakespeare's kind of, I suppose, populism in that sense? Yeah, I think we've always known that there's a certain amount of bawdy humour in Shakespeare, that you know, the servants uh, come on from the Capulets and the Montagues at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, and they sort of say, you know, I shake my sword at you, and, uh, you know, we will thrust the Capulet maids up against the wall, and you sort of know what they're talking about. But what we've found uh, by doing this really, really detailed commentary and uh, making use of a lot of new electronic resources that allow you to search huge amounts of popular literature from the age of Shakespeare, what we found is that this, this bawdy language, this sexual wordplay, is much, much more per pervasive uh, than anybody's really realised before. Um, Obviously in the comedies, but also in all sorts of surprising places in, 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 in the tragedies. There is a, a, a real sort of robust, down-to-earth, bawdy language. And I think that, you know, in a way that's not been noticed so much by editors, because editors are... Um, you know, coming out of the academic tradition back, back when editing began for Shakespeare in, in the 18th century, editors were very much gentlemen writing for the library and there was a bit of a, a prejudice against the sort of the low-life aspects of, of, of Shakespearean wordplay. Um, but, you know, it's so important to remember that Shakespeare was, was writing for the popular theatre, uh, writing for all sorts of different, different audiences, um, and that that sort of robust, physical, very sexual humour, sort of toilet humour, that is a big part of what the plays are about. And I, I'm unapologetic about this. I mean, Shakespeare's greatness comes from the sense that 
He speaks about all aspects of human experience. And the fact is, sexual reproduction is a pretty large part of human experience. And the amazing thing is the, the juxtaposition of these different languages. So in Romeo and Juliet, literally within a few minutes on stage, you'll have the most beautiful poetry. Soft, what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east and Juliet is the sun. Or, you know, she hangs upon the cheek of night like a jewel in an Ethiop's ear. Fantastic, romantic poetry. And yet a few lines uh, after that, Mercutio and Romeo are engaging in some bawdy humour. Oh, says uh, Mercutio, that she were an open arse and thou a popperin pair. Where popperin pair is a, was a kind of pear from popperin in Belgium. But it's also a pun popperin, pop it in, pop. Well, I needn't go on. Our appreciation, I suppose, of the literature is how dependent is it on understanding the, the that kind of context in which the plays were originally written and performed, the context, whether it be social, the language or political context of the time? You always have to see Shakespeare and to, to, to read him because when you see the plays, the, the dynamic of plot, of character... Um, the, the the sheer skill in the, the, the storytelling and the characterization carries you forward and you don't actually attend to every line and you don't necessarily understand every nuance um, and, and that's fine and you know that's how Shakespeare originally wrote and you know he wrote he wrote for the ear but of course his audience did have this very sophisticated rhetorical training and I think they they had an ear for wordplay that, that that we don't have. And if you want to recapture that aspect of Shakespeare, then you need to read the plays and you need to read them with the assistance of explanatory notes. And Dr. Johnson, the great 18th century editor, famously said that footnotes have a tendency to refrigerate the mind, to sort of take the poetry away. Um, but what we've tried to do in, the, in this edition is... Um, put in the explanatory notes where they're necessary, in particular to draw out a sense of the, the wonderful wordplay, the multiple meanings, but not to overwhelm the reader with notes. You know, there are some editions uh, where literally there will be more notes than text on the page. So we've, we've tried to sort of strike a medium there. This is an edition that was created in partnership with the RSC, the Royal Shakespeare Company. Is this an edition that's driven as much by performance as it is by the written word? Well, one of the aims is certainly to produce a kind of base text that will always go into the RSC rehearsal room and that directors will work from. Directors being directors will always cut, alter, maybe even add. Uh, that's their prerogative and it always has been and that's one of the ways Shakespeare stays alive. Um, but as a, as a kind of core text, um, particularly with the, the way that um, we've we've handled stage directions and punctuation, I, 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 we have been very theatre focused in the editing. Having said that, one of the great qualities of the first folio is the sense that, in putting it together, Shakespeare's fellow actors seem to have really had it both ways. They they drew their texts from the theatre. They used stage directions and other details from the so-called prompt books in the theatre. 
So they are very much presenting the plays as performance pieces. But at the same time, they say in their preface that these are plays to be read, read him, therefore they say, and again and again, to be read and reread. And there are certain features of the text, for instance, the way they divide the plays up into five acts. Um, those features um, are based on classical drama that in Shakespeare's time was intended to be read rather than performed. Um, the five-act division wouldn't actually have been there in Shakespeare's theatre. So there is a conscious attempt to sort of dress these up as, as reading texts and to produce a sort of literary classic, whilst at the same time being attuned to the theatre. And it's exactly that, that sort of double sense of a, a reading text and a theatre text within the same covers that we've, we've tried to follow. Do you think we've underestimated the role that both the actors who are contemporary to Shakespeare, who actually performed and worked on the plays with him, and then those who have followed taking those, taking those sort of plays and making them live through the ages. Do we, do we underestimate the impact that they've actually had on the text themselves? I, th I think we do. I mean, I think one of, one of the lessons that I've learned from this, this process of working very closely on the original texts is that all the way through... Shakespeare's art needs to be thought of as collaborative. The idea of Shakespeare as a kind of romantic genius sitting in a garret alone with his quill, having great thoughts, it kind of wasn't like that. He, he was always writing parts for specific actors. You know, he knew, he had the cast in his head when he started writing. And then once he hands the plays over to the actors, they will make suggestions, they'll make cuts, um, he'll work with them in the theatre, and then the actors and other people as well, like the, the scribes who copy the manuscripts, um, all play a part in the creation of the printed text. So it's a profoundly collaborative art. And that collaboration sort of continued posthumously as actors reworked the plays, reinterpreted the plays in the light of later cultural circumstances. And it's a bit like a, a sort of process of Darwinian evolution the, the, um, the, through, through the work um, obviously of editors and scholars, but I think above all of, of actors and theatre people, performers, um, Shakespeare is, is constantly refreshed and kept alive. So are, is the Shakespearean canon something then that should be venerated and uh, left as, uh, as, as it is, or is it something that Shakespeare himself would have been quite happy for us to really muck about with? I think he'd have been very happy with the mucking about, and uh, it's exactly that process of mucking about that has gone on in, in the theatre, and of course we now see it in, uh, in, in, in the movies, where in order to get Shakespeare into um, the sort of two hours that's the sort of standard length of a movie, you have to do an awful lot of cutting. But then there would have been cutting in Shakespeare's time too. The prologue to Romeo and Juliet speaks of the two hours traffic of our trade. And uh, it, 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 most of the, the big tragedies in particular, uh, even in the folio texts, uh, couldn't have been performed in two hours. So I think actually what the folio probably represented for Shakespeare was the sort of, again, the base text, as, as the RSC is going to use it now. And in terms of actual performance, there would have been a fair degree of, 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 of cutting. And I think he'd have been happy about that. But the fact that those folio texts do survive perhaps shows at some level he wanted a fuller version to be, to be read. Um, but I think he'd have been quite happy to see things uh, sort of cut, messed around with, pasted. Does this new edition then strengthen Shakespeare's position as our, as our greatest ever playwright, or, or is that something that we need to kind of reassess? I don't think um, it needs a new edition for sort of Shakespeare's status to be to be confirmed as as you know the supreme writer in an age of great writers because you know we mustn't 
underestimate the um, the gifts of some of his contemporaries, like like Christopher Marlowe. Um, but I think um, the the particular way that we've 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 done the edition, um, I hope, manages both to to give lots and lots of very interesting information about his original historical circumstance, but also to make him fresh and accessible, uh, and a living figure in, in the culture today. A new statue of Macbeth by the American artist Greg Wyatt has been unveiled at the Great Garden of New Place in Stratford-upon-Avon. Dominic Dean went to meet the artist and Roger Pringle, director of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, who commissioned the work. This is Dominic Dean from the Capital Centre at the University of Warwick. I'm here on a beautiful day in Stratford-upon-Avon in the Great Garden of New Place, standing in the grounds of the house where William Shakespeare died in 1616. This is a beautiful garden in its own right. But since 1999, it's also become the home to an increasing series of sculptures depicting characters, themes and ideas from Shakespeare's plays, all designed and produced by the American sculptor Greg Wyatt. I'm joined now by Greg himself and the director of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, Roger Pringle. Uh, the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust ma manages the garden and they're going to talk to me a little bit about this magnificent new sculpture which has been unveiled today by Sir Ian McCallum. Greg, I'm just looking at the sculpture. Um, it seems quite unusual. It, it's not sort of any one particular uh, um, character alone, but um, a sort of mirage of different characters and themes from the play. Would you tell me a little bit how you operate to produce that kind of effect? Well, it's a process of discovery, and uh, <clears throat> these are intersections of uh, suggestions about the play and about the characters. Uh, there is no real one perspective. It's not designed as a bas-relief, for instance, where you would have a frame, if you will. Uh, it's um, parts of bronze that have shared uh, relationships in color and texture. Quite frankly, the materiality, for instance, is very much part of the uh, uh, effort <coughs> to uh, convey what, in words, poetry of Shakespeare, you know. Right, so when you're working on sort of transferring from the text on the page to um, producing something which is sort of physical and material and also fixed in a fixed place like this garden, how hard is that to do and how do you go about it? Well, it's completely by trial by error. I believe in that process. Uh, the sketch, of course, is perhaps first the reading of the play and uh, thinking, uh, small meditation. Uh, in terms of a physical response, which we do as daily practice in our studio. Uh, there might be a maquette or a bozzetti in some flexible material. Um, I would be found on any day with wax, uh, most likely, or plastilina, and probably I'd be working out more with my hands and less with tools, which may surprise. I'm fascinated by your own story as well, Greg, because you um, started out yourself presumably in the United States. How was it that you've um, come over here to Stratford-upon-Avon to this garden? Well, I first met uh, Roger Pringle on one fine afternoon just like this, and I had with me an appointment to show and to get his responses to a very prominent Hudson River School of painting artists from the 19th century named Jasper Cropser. And Roger and I met on an intellectual and artistic and cultural immediacy. Nice way and of putting it. Yeah. Yes. 
has been marvelous uh, these past eight, nine years. Great. So were you already um, a big fan of Shakespeare? Did you know a lot about Shakespeare before you started well, these sculptures? Uh, or have I you learned? was, <clears throat> not that I was competitive, but I was ahead of my classmates, which had required reading in eighth grade in the States of uh, Julius Caesar. I actually began reading when I was 10 or 11. And what attracted me was, as you might have guessed, the uh, book covers. And a great thrill in my career was meeting an artist that is well known for the covers of the paperback series of Shakespeare of uh, Penguin. Which artist Milton, was that? Milton Glaser. And um, so I, there was in my small community along the Hudson River a, a bookstore, Pickwick bookstore. And in the summer of eighth and ninth grade, I became increasingly curious about what was inside these book covers. And one by one, I would read a play a week. And then I began to draw my responses. And at that stage, my early part of my career, I was not uh, sculpting. So it was more illustrating. And of course, as you came to draw Shakespeare, there is quite a history of Shakespeare in visual art as well, isn't there? Yes, yes. Do you draw um, much from that, or do you just draw directly from the play text as it is? Well, first I take my Webster's Dictionary. <clears throat> and I explore the trees or the branches of words. Hmm. And I, many times, I still do this, a word at a time. And um, the lexicon gives me even more insight. For instance, looking up the word art, I tell my students, this is a, a beginning point that I did myself. It's really a fascinating uh, way to stimulate the um, and to inspire for the arts. So it begins with the words and what I'm trying to do is in the language of sculpture uh, make co-equal uh, insights or descriptions. If I can just come over to Roger now for a moment as well. Let's see, um, you started Roger I think um, in 1999, is that right? Yes, that's right Dominic. That was the first uh, sculpture to be placed in the garden, The Tempest. And I suppose it was a bit sort of a trial and error. I don't really remember whether we'd agreed to uh, have a whole sculpture trail. I think it was a bit of a, a tester and a taster. But the re response to that first sculpture was very, very good, both you know, local residents who come into this garden and, and our visitors. And the, lev the level of engagement was there to see, and it was that which led us to the concept of a, of a, a sculpture trail that would go right round that side of the garden and eventually embrace perhaps eight or nine pieces. I see. And just looking at this sculpture in front of us at the moment, if you can try and describe it for the listeners, what is it about this sculpture physically that so appeals to you and that's kept you sort of, um, inviting new sculptures from Greg right up to 2007? I think for me one of the key things is they're not static objects. They're, they have a remarkable ability to... To, to assume different forms and different shapes. It's almost as though they're moving and growing. In fact, in some, on some days, in some lights, these sculptures, particularly at a bit of a distance, actually look like crabapple trees or some sort of organic structures. And so they fit actually very well into a garden environment there. But of course, as you come up close to them, you then start getting your own different sorts of surprises. You know that they are inspired by a particular play. You walk around and touch them and you realize that you're getting glimpses of perhaps a character here or an event there. 
Um, I've noticed myself, yes. just looking at the sculptures, that suddenly a small detail seems to stand yeah, out, like does. the hilt of a dagger yeah, or a ring. Will, will. It'll spring out, won't, won't it, at you? A little, a little detail which will um, you know, open up uh, a window on a particular area, of perhaps, of, uh, of, of the play. I actually learned you? that from Shakespeare. Yes. A quick on and then a disappear. But I think what's interesting is the accumulation of such details. Um, is, is, isn't just a kind of bronze catalogue. I mean, the whole thing has uh, a kind of pleasing form and shape which integrates all these elements and at the same time is in its total effect a statement about the play or about certainly about Greg's response to the play. This is interesting because the, the Macbeth, which we've just unveiled, Greg, is is, is modelled perhaps more than any of the others with a sense of, of, of light and uh, the sort of see-through effects that it has. Is that, uh, I don't know whether that was driven by any particular instinct. The maquette, the maquette uh, was more solid yes. and more unified as a mass. Uh, but I began uh, making a response to that maquette right. and actually took it apart into what I call the acts, and then reassembling them almost in mon montage. The first one didn't work. Right. Now I'm fascinated here because we're talking about the play as a text and the acts, but do you also model uh, the sculptures on particular performances? I mean we've had Ian McAllen here today, who of course was a great renowned Macbeth. Have you ever sort of um, taken inspiration from a particular actor or performance? Oh, many times, many times. I mean, <coughs> uh, the brilliance of this actor, for instance, in watching his hand gesture, as I was doing, actually, during the uh, ceremony. This particular sculpture has a very striking hand gesture, doesn't yeah. it? It does. reminds one of various things, not, not least Lady Macbeth seeing the spots of, or thinking she sees the spots of blood, of course, mm -hmm. on her hand in the sleepwalking scene. Yeah. But no doubt there are other references in your mind yes. when, you, when you gave that feature prominence as you've done in the, in the piece. And actually w this hand uh, yeah. begins to disappear. Yes. And one appears, one disappears. Now Greg, obviously you must have learned a lot about these different uh, Shakespeare characters in the process of creating this series. Has there been any that's sort of appealed to you more than the others? Have you identified with any particular character maybe? Oh, uh, they're all equal. They, I mean, if you're asking me the question, you know, is there a uh, sculptural uh, Shakespearean character? Well, you think of, let's say, the massive uh, Prospero, or even more massive, the, the Henry Falstaff. Uh, but they're not bound by any particular, I mean, we don't know exactly what Shakespeare had in mind in terms of particular descriptions except for well who knows we, we know of course very very well nothing really about uh, mm -hmm. Shakespeare's own approach to, to his art one can't but help feel that any of his characters are probably uh, composites of many different um, experiences of Shakespeare's either encounters with people in real life or encounters in his reading and, and, and literature I, I think it's always a mistake to deduce simplistic uh, 
uh, you know, answers to you know, a character, how a character is, you know, what, 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 what is a character based on? Is he based on a real live person or is it an imaginative creation? We, we, we just don't know. Will you be sorry to finish the series here at New Place? Very fine question. Immensely <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but Roger, I know the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust looks after several other Shakespeare houses. Could their gardens be turned into... Um, of uh, art galleries well, as well. Well, I'll let you into a little secret because, in fact, thanks to Greg's initiative and inspiration, we actually have a second sculpture program running alongside this one in the Great Garden. It's located in the Shakespeare Tree Garden, which is close to Anne Hathaway's cottage, and it involves commissioning <laughs> gifted students on both sides of the Atlantic to produce pieces, again Shakespeare inspired, uh, for this particular space. And the, 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 there have been six placements so far. And each of these students has had a chance of coming to Stratford for a week or ten days, watching performances at the RSC, using the resources of our library, and at the end of that process, coming up with an idea for a sculpture for a particular play. And it's worked, I think, in a very satisfactory way and, and some extremely interesting creative results um, have, have emanated from that. So there is actually another sculpture trail of a, of a very different kind which is developing at Anne Hathaway's. Right, well we should look forward to seeing it I'm sure. And standing here in Shakespeare's garden do you think that he would have approved? Oh I'm, I'm sure he would have done. I, I mean I, I think that Shakespeare in a sense bought this garden and the house that went with it new place as a kind of retreat from the hassle and pressures of his London life. He needed a garden, he needed its peace and silence in which he could think and cogitate and uh, maybe sit down and start drafting some, some scripts which he would then take to London and share with Richard Burbage and the other actors when he got to the capital. And I think he would have enjoyed the thought that his own extraordinary creations have in themselves inspired uh, artists in, in, many, in many respects. And here we have a, um, a wonderful example of that. In our next episode, we talk to comedian Lenny Henry and director Barry Rutter who recently gave a masterclass on Othello at Warwick's Capital Centre. So until then, goodbye.